Hey there, welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. So a theme we revisit every now and again is whether the sort of contemplative spirituality we talk about here has anything to offer us in times of cultural conflicts, which to Americans seems perpetually relevant. So I have friends who would say we very much should get mad and get mobilized, that that's the whole idea behind righteous anger. While I have others who would suggest that spiritual growth should lead us to become less, not more reactive, and that beyond the mental health benefits from that, that sort of equanimity also helps us wisely choose whatever we should actually do. I've been thinking about what to me is a fascinating look at a kind of on the one hand, on the other hand approach to this that a whole genre in and outside of the Bible takes about very much this question. The genre is a lesser known one called apocalypses, of which the most famous example, and the one we'll kick around here, is the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I have been helped by an in-depth exploration of this by a biggie scholar in the field, and I'll fill you in on some of his thoughts. We'll touch on some provocative points of interest along the way, like whether artificial intelligence takes over our brains and wills, and how in the end, maybe the issue isn't so much about being outraged or not, but it's about how we can be made into a person who can safely handle things like righteous anger, and along the way, maybe avoid being enslaved by our artificial intelligence overlords. I hope that as it has for me, this will help you engage in the story of the world around you in a surprising and helpful way. A quick public service announcement before we roll on. Uh, if you're the sort of person who likes to do end-of-year giving to charitable causes, by all means consider us here at The Pocket Contemplative and a Journey On and Blue Ocean Faith, our kind of parent organizations to this podcast. We would totally appreciate it. Um, the way to give to us is to go to journey-on.net. There's a Give tab you can click, and it'll tell you how to send checks or use a credit card or use PayPal or basically money. If you want to give us money, that would be super helpful. We would love it. Thank you so much. All right, let's dive into On Cultural Conflicts and Getting Mad. Some of you are on the mailing list that I host, so you'll know that we've been having a provocative conversation there about how we might navigate the social and religious divisions that many Americans are so profoundly feeling these days. If, by the way, you would like to receive and contribute to those emails, you can sign up at blueoceanfaith.org slash connect. Again, another one of our parent organizations, blueoceanfaith.org slash connect. And then once you've done that, you click join the list, and then you'll have a form by which you can join the list. Anyway, on that mailing list, one aspect of divisions like these we've talked about is that on occasion, these divisions provoke outrage in us. Now, that might feel like a good thing to you in the spirit that outrageous provocations deserve outrage by definition, which of course might move us to action. Or it might feel like a bad thing to you. Maybe previous experiences with outrage have never taken you anywhere good, and reactive outrage might not feel entirely in keeping with the contemplative endeavor. I find myself thinking about a recent get-together I had with an old friend and his new girlfriend who seemed like a pleasant person. When I asked what she did for fun, she had a surprising and innocent response. She said she went on to Twitter to, quote, own people who had what she did not know were, in fact, my own political, social, and spiritual leanings. So that put an interesting spin on my first impressions of my friend's girlfriend. I found myself processing with my wife, Grace, about what next steps I might take with this woman. Should I just pretend we hadn't had that conversation? Should I speak up? Should I just regard it as no big deal? Just a preference of hers, like that, say, she likes movies I'm not as fond of. Or maybe I should distance myself from my friend until he loses this new girlfriend. Afterwards, I found my mind drifting towards one of the Bible's crazier books, the last book of the Bible called Revelation. As I looked at it in these last couple of weeks, it struck me as a book 
by someone who's really angry about ongoing persistent injustice towards people the author, John, though a different John than the apostle, cares about. He's angry about fellow Christians who've been murdered because they're Christians, and you can understand why that would upset him. And he navigates that anger in wildly differing ways through the book, from pastoral advice to crazy visions of doom coming from both heaven and hell towards evildoers, to famously beautiful pictures of where history is heading. Revelation is the most famous example of a type of writing called an apocalypse, which technically means, well, revelation, hence the name. It's about secrets getting revealed. Apocalypses have become known for fiery rhetoric about destruction or the end of the world, and they're written to address very much the challenges we're facing today, really divided times where people are provoked by what seem like profound and ongoing injustices with what feels like no redress, like the cultural enemy is overwhelming. I think both my friend's girlfriend and I felt that way in our conversation from different perspectives. But of interest to us today is that these apocalypses each expressly address the balance between getting mad and living in some sort of God zone, presenting them as different without cutting either loose, as if that challenge is fundamental to being human. Earlier apocalypses, like stretches of Isaiah and Ezekiel, give us vivid descriptions of how either Israel or the surrounding nations are going to get blasted by a pissed-off God, but then also offer some of the most famous and powerful stretches of the super hopeful and beautiful coming reign of God that exists in literature. And it's this dynamic, one thing held in tension with what seems like the opposite thing, that turns out to be what Revelation offers us in tensions like those we have today. So for those of you who are philosophically minded, it seems sort of like what Hegel called a thesis, provoking an antithesis, leading to a new synthesis that gets the job done. Some of the most famous ways, though, that people in history have used Revelation demonstrate how tempting and, in the end, destructive, focusing on just one part of that pairing of opposites can be. So to take a quick look at two popular, but to my mind, unhelpful ways to read Revelation. The first is finding the hidden to everyone except us prophetic understandings. So John paints lots of visions of God sending doom onto the earth because of the outrages of his day. And throughout the last couple of thousand years, people have found it irresistible to take those prophecies of doom as actual predictions for their own time, which perhaps has the exhilarating effect of situating us in a cosmic drama, maybe so that we no longer have to feel the helplessness of our actual present situation. So chapters 8 to 11 talk about seven avenging angels blowing trumpets, which announce different sorts of doom to the earth. It's sort of a reversal of the seven days of creation that opens the Bible in response to the injustices against Christians of John's day. So here are some popular 20th century interpretations of how those prophecies of doom are being fulfilled in our time. So the first angel has a fiery vision, which some famous Christians of the previous century said predicted World War II, in which John's hail and fire from the sky equates to aerial bombings. Then there's the second angel. Second angel blows their trumpet, And then a flaming mountain gets thrown into the sea, which then turns to blood, killing sea creatures and destroying ships. So those same commenters said, well, the fiery mountain connects to atom bombs detonating in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When the third angel blows their trumpet, a star called Wormwood falls from heaven, poisoning the water on Earth. And we're told this came to pass with a 1986 nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl. When the fourth angel blows their trumpet, the sky becomes dark as the sun, moon, and stars are dimmed. And in the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein set hundreds of oil wells on fire, which darkened the sky with smoke. When the fifth angel blows their trumpet in a particularly hallucinatory vision, demonic locusts with human faces are unleashed, who fatally sting with their tails. 
We are told this corresponds to modern military helicopters in which human pilots fly like insects and shoot fire in combat. When the sixth angel blows their trumpet, it unleashes conflict along the Euphrates River in which demonic horses and riders kill off a third of all human beings. This is said to be fulfilled during the war in Iraq, which includes the Euphrates, in which the fire-breathing horses are modern tanks. And all this adds up to the imminent end of the world, at which point other vivid pictures from Revelation, which also require special interpretation, will come into play. Relatively recent books like the Left Behind series read Revelation like this, as did the great revivalist Dwight Moody. But you won't be surprised to hear that most scholars aren't into this, if only because many such predictions have come and gone since Revelation was written, but also because they see it as against John's actual point. Then here's another popular, but to my mind, unhelpful way to read Revelation, which is using it as a stick to hit our enemies with. Another way people read Revelation is to help them call their enemies names. So Revelation famously teaches us about something that it turns out isn't mentioned in the book at all. This end times evildoer called the Antichrist, who will deceive many people as he enslaves them before Jesus ultimately saves the day. In the Middle Ages, every single pope got called the Antichrist by some famous people, and then Martin Luther amended this to say, no, that's not right. The entire institution of the papacy itself is the Antichrist. They're all Antichrist. Most U.S. Democratic presidents have been called the Antichrist by conservative Christians, although I recall Ronald Reagan getting called this because each of his names, including his middle name, which was Wilson, had six letters. So 666, the famous number of the Antichrist, seems pretty ironclad to me. Clearly, it was Reagan. Done deal. Scholars point out that one non-inconsequential problem with this is that there is no Antichrist in Revelation. There are two so-called beasts who certainly are evil, and there is one evil dragon, but there is no Antichrist. For that, you need to go to First and Second Peter, which are not apocalypses. It seems like what we're commonly calling the Antichrist now is a blend of one of the beasts in Revelation with Peter's Antichrist, who are hyper-spiritual Christians who question Jesus' humanity, hence they are Antichrist, and this character in 2 Thessalonians called the man of lawlessness. So if we're denied using Revelation as a way to put ourselves at the center of history while our enemies suffer, what good is it? What is John's advice to us about how to find God in the uncertainties of our time? Let's consider that in light of Hegel's idea of theses and antitheses producing a productive synthesis. So here's a thesis. Feel whatever outrage you need to feel. Now, just to say, again, this might not be the space you're in at all. But be that as it may, as we've touched on in passages like the angels blowing the trumpets, John clearly does feel whatever outrage he needs to feel. He is royally angry and wants justice to the point of bloodthirsty vengeance. He throws out major critiques of what he sees as the monstrous state around him, pointing out that whereas Rome conquers nation after nation after nation then, and then then spins tales about how benevolent they are, bringing prosperity to all their neighbors, they are instead actually playing the role of, to choose just one of his metaphors, a prostitute, a freakish dragon, and a couple of beasts whose role is basically to destroy the world for their own gain. He's pissed off, and he gives a whole lot of play to that, including detailing again and again how the state and anyone who cooperates with them will ultimately get immense judgment, often torture, when God finally deals with them. John is quick to point out that what people do does matter and will not be forgotten in the next life. He references another Old Testament apocalyptic section, part of the book of Daniel, that says everything we do gets written down in what Daniel calls the book of deeds, which sets up consequences in the life to come. What we do matters, he says, and what evildoers do matters. So, the thesis, 
feel whatever outrage you feel and take comfort that judgment is coming. But then there's an antithesis to this. But don't get played by the devil. So my sophomore and high school daughter, very pragmatic by nature, is in a yoga class she hates. Just to say her older sister also took that class and loved it, so we've hit a temperamental difference here. And illustrating the lameness of this yoga class, she told Grace and me about an upcoming conversation in the class about whether or not we have free will. Grace and I then spent about half an hour animatedly discussing this, leading our daughter to leave with an eye roll long before we were done. We talked about how artificial intelligence, as the recent Facebook whistleblower who testified before Congress highlighted, can be proven to take away free will to some degree among heavy social media users. This whistleblower talked about how Facebook weighted angry face replies five times more than it weighted likes, meaning it would then feed the user five times more of stuff that would outrage them, knowing that outrage would drive engagement more than anything. So then I'm seeing articles about things like how this by all accounts totally sweet man got sucked into conspiracy theories online and now is a triple murderer. Did he have free will or did the artificial intelligence predictably algorithmically create a murderer? Is AI another word for the devil? And what does this have to say about Paul telling us in Galatians 5 that, quote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free? Will we all be enslaved by our limbic systems, our reptile brains, unless we pursue Jesus with whatever spiritual choices allegedly can free us from this? Anyway, welcome to Dinner Conversation in the Smelser Home. Revelation is on board with this conversation, not least in how John talks about what the devil does. So these two passages, for instance, from chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So evidently, Satan's role in heaven was to accuse people before God day and night. But God got sick of this, and so he hurled Satan to the earth. He was done with that. So now, really angry, Satan does the same thing he did in heaven as he now rules earth. But rather than accusing us to God, he accuses us to each other. Hence, the effects of artificial intelligence driving us towards outrage all the time. For all I know, it's the current way Satan does his Satan things. So somehow, John encourages us to walk what at first glance feels like an exceedingly tricky line of feeling righteous anger about outrageous things without being enslaved by outrage. And for what it's worth, I sometimes do wonder if some of my most righteously angry friends, like me at times, runs this risk. Okay, so if that's too fine a line to figure out how to walk, maybe the next thesis and antithesis are going to help us. So here's another thesis. Tell your truth. So in my summary of the six trumpets that the angels blow in chapters 8 to 11, I never got to the seventh trumpet, the climax. Many things in Revelation come in sevens, and if not in sevens, in twelves. And it's noteworthy that the folks who see this as predictions of their own era also just avoid talking about the climactic trumpet, the one which will punctuate all this destruction and vengeance that an angry God is going to rain down on us because of how our enemies are spitting in his face. Because the book takes a surprising turn there. It turns out that this turn does, in fact, correspond to the seventh day of creation in Genesis when God rested. So this is the seventh trumpet. The angel said there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. So after all this crazy destruction, here's that fulfillment of God's mysterious plan. 
Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again, go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Yes, take it and eat it. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Here's how Craig R. Kester, a leading scholar about Revelation, really one of the biggies on Revelation, talks about what John is driving at here. He writes, the visions tell us not how long justice will take, but why God has refrained from bringing a final judgment against the world. The visions show that sending plagues of wrath against the world is futile. God has delayed bringing final judgment to provide space for his people to bear witness, to talk, to tell their truth. So an onslaught of horror rains down, but after the sixth trumpet, what's changed? Nothing in terms of our relationship to God or to each other, and why should it? Why should people turn to a God who seems bent on destroying the world? We expect that the seventh trumpet will bring final judgment, but instead, the angel gives John a scroll to eat to empower him to prophesy again, which is God's preferred way to speak to the world, as if we readers of Revelation aren't to passively wait for God to bring judgment but to engage in speaking into the world alongside God. When that seventh trumpet finally sounds, it doesn't bring disaster, but celebration of the reign of God. Okay, so what does that mean? So, I don't know, does this mean I need to embrace the ideological fight with my friend's girlfriend? What does it look like to tell our truths to people who aren't likely to be able to take in our truths? Isn't that what Jesus called throwing pearls before swine? As I ponder that, the antithesis here does give some texture to this truth it appears I'm supposed to be telling. There's an antithesis. Tell your truth is the thesis. The antithesis is marinate in hope. So as I've mentioned, for all the anger and outrage at John Vents here, as we see in other apocalypses, he then details a pretty spectacular vision of hope in chapter 21. Here's some cuttings from it that strike me. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So where before the the only bride he was talking about was a prostitute, now it's a bride where there's love rather than some sort of transactional connection. There's lasting commitment. There's some something beautiful. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city with these gates that aren't closed." So again, we get told that the gates aren't meant evidently to keep people out. I mean, what's the point of gates if you're not keeping people out? But these are never closed. They are there evidently to encourage people that they're totally invited to come in. For all the toggling John does between bloodthirsty judgment for the evildoers in his time, he, in true Hegelian thesis, antithesis fashion, emphasizes again and again that this spectacular hope is completely offered to anyone who wants it, who comes to it. So, yes, it's important to him to say, the evildoers are totally going to get blasted. You can count on it. They're going to get it. Unless, say, they happen to, like, wander into the awesome heavenly city through one of the many strategically open gates. There's a famous number earlier in the book about how many people will ultimately be saved, which is 144,000. 
But it seems like that's a symbolic number, which is back to John's love of 12s, because that number quickly transitions to being, quote, every tongue and tribe and nation by the end, and then to an uncountable multitude invited into the heavenly city. Here's a little more. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the center, excuse me, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Medicine to heal the nations, and perhaps to heal all the ways one nation damages another nation, or one divisive group injures another group. Maybe in this beautiful vision of where things are headed, there's healing for the ways we hurt each other, as Satan accuses us all one to the other, and we get so mad. Maybe, and we do actual damage to people, which then causes outrage, rightly so, because we've just damaged them, um, and maybe murdered people like John's mad about. It seems like what he's saying is, but there's healing for that in the big picture in this final city. No longer, continuing, will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God, who inspires his prophets, has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. So it's a big deal to John that we can take this hope to the bank. So let's see if I can get this straight. Here's John. John is filled with righteous anger, which he'd never... He never recants. He's filled with the righteous anger. And he simultaneously believes that being filled with the righteous anger will likely damn you and me. Because it's our way of following Satan into accusing each other of things, which then kills off our empathy towards our enemies and makes us see them as inhuman and worth destroying. Unlike John himself, who emphasizes that the doors of paradise strangely remain open to the worst of them, granted they do have to walk in. But then he again and again emphasizes how important it is that we have the right kind of righteous anger. And early in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he tells us that if we don't have righteous anger towards the people who deserve righteous anger, we end up getting condemned by God. It's enough to make you crazy. What are we supposed to do? So in the end, John phrases the the dilemma this way. How can we become safe to feel righteous anger? which again, he thinks it's important for us to do. How can we not get enslaved by the artificial intelligence poking at our outrage until we become someone very different than the selves we'd hoped to be? And John foreshadows his answer at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. There he describes how Jesus has written letters, yes, to seven churches that summarize all of the themes that John is about to explore. Those letters have plenty of anger at the evildoers that he'll say more about in the chapters that follow. But then the letters sternly tell us that our bottom line is to make it through the challenges of living through vivid, horrible, challenging, divisive times. And here's a few of the ways he puts it. This is from Revelation 2. I, this is Jesus speaking, know all the things you, this church he's writing to, do. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. To everyone who's victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And John goes on to say this in another letter to another church. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious, 
will sit with me on my throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I think this, John is telling us, is how Jesus for freedom sets us free. This is how we become safe to feel outrage at outrageous things and to stand with Jesus on important things. This is how we bring synthesis between John's theses and antitheses. We diligently do whatever we need to do to actually live in the hope that John so vividly details at the end of Revelation, to marinate in the hope of that heavenly city to the point that we're almost living in it right now, to rejoice at the 12 open gates and all the nations, good and bad, bringing their gifts into it. We rejoice in embracing the faithful day-to-day practices then that empower us to each day rediscover our first love for God and for other people, of leaving behind the indifference that comes from the way the stresses of life day by day dilute our hot love of our life with God and tempt us to go for comfort to artificial intelligence, which is telling us who our enemies are, which enslaves us. In my experience, learning how to do this through all the trials and challenges of life, both directly in our own lives, and as we see the broader injustices and outrage that John details, is the ongoing work of our lives. It's the thing we will be doing forevermore. And Jesus, excuse me, and John promises this is going to be true, which is why we have to again and again turn from our indifference and open the door to Jesus, who is right outside knocking all the time. In my experience, how to do this will look different to different people and at different stages of life. Obviously, I do a lot of talking here about how contemplative practice is this sort of opening of the door, but it requires kind of diligent pursuit daily, or it doesn't really do much. But John's point is that however you do it, it's centrally important that you do it. This work has been central to great saints of resistance to evil, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer I talked about in a recent podcast. He was both very firm in standing up against injustice and famously utterly warm and kind-hearted even towards Nazis who were his guards. And the one gift we all get is that we can live in the theses and antitheses of feeling whatever outrage we sometimes feel while at the same time not getting played by the devil and of telling our truths while also marinating in hope. Here's how this scholar, Craig R. Kester, closes his remarks. He writes, It's easy to think of evil working relentlessly on earth because it's so powerful. But to John, evil's relentlessness isn't because it's powerful, but because it's desperate and losing. We're to give our allegiance to life, not death. Let's join that team together. What do you say? All right. Thanks so much for joining this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. Happy Advent if you are listening during Advent. We'll talk again soon.